This is a crowd podcast. I did not say it was safe to fly. That's Tony Pace. On the contrary. Speaking at a press conference in August 2021. I gave as good a heads up as any diplomat could have done at that time. Given his former role with MI6, it was incredibly risky for him to appear. And I wasn't sure if he would attend until the very last minute. In fact, when I flew over to London for it, it was 50-50 in my mind as to whether the event would go ahead at all. I half expected some kind of last-minute injunction would put a stop to it. I met Tony beforehand, under the clock at Waterloo Station. Never had I felt more like I was in a spy novel. We were both nervous about speaking to the world's press, but Tony showed great courage. Could I possibly ask the Human Shields and their families, I think, to gather up here? At the conference, Tony, the Human Shields and I were calling for the release of the Operation Sandcastle report, mentioned in the last episode. We were joined by Clive Earthy, Barry Manners, Jenny Gill, Margaret Hearn and many of the other Human Shields. We all wanted one simple thing, the truth. This is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. Let me take you back to how Tony ended up at the press conference in the first place. After a long and successful career, Tony Pace had retired and was living in the south of England. In one of those stranger-than-fiction coincidences, he shared a mutual friend with none other than Clive Earthy. Both men were keen to meet each other. There weren't many people who could fully understand the Flight 149 story. A meeting was arranged at a pub in Hampshire. Tony said that he was writing his memoirs, despite being bound by the Official Secrets Act. He said his role in the Flight 149 affair had been misrepresented, and that what I'd previously reported, that he'd advised British Airways it was safe to fly to Kuwait that night, was wrong. He was angry about the way he'd been blamed. Clive gave him my details so he could write to me. Not long after, I received the following from Tony. Dear Stephen Davis, I have had to put up with repeated inaccurate allegations, lies and half-truths for over 30 years now and firmly believe that it is high time that history was owed the facts. I wrote back. This is what I said. In my reporting of your role in other print accounts, I relied on depositions given under oath. I too believe the full truth should come out. Cast your mind back to the very first episode. You might remember Clive Earthy talking about a group of men who boarded the flight at the very last minute. Literally at the time of departure originally that is when the men boarded they were seated down the back of the aircraft I seem to remember seven or eight of them just young fit looking men Clive wasn't the only one to notice them they stood out to Barry Manners too they were very super fit looking young men 
who seemed to be part of a cohesive group and uh, they were wearing what I'd kind of describe as um, they'd all been to Sports Direct I suppose and I just thought that's weird because if they were I, I guess that they were working in an oil rig or something in, in, in the Gulf but the, the guys that I knew that had those jobs in you know those highly paid jobs very highly paid back in those days they had a bit of bling about them they, they just didn't fit in Over the course of my investigation Several other passengers have also mentioned this group of men to me. Deborah Saloon remembers seeing them having lots of technical-looking equipment. But it was Clive who had the most dealings with them, in his role as cabin services director. I had to go through with landing cards for uh, Kuwait. Um, that's a standard procedure. When I got up to the men at the back, I said, Gentlemen, I believe you are departing the flight in uh, Kuwait. You have already your permissions, I am assuming, but you will need landing cards for the immigration people. To which one gentleman said, uh, we don't think we're going to have much time for that. And I said, you jolly well will, sir, because they won't let you into the country without it. To which he then said, oh, for goodness sake, give me the bloody things and I'll get them all to fill them out later. Overall, I thought it was a little strange, but there we are. That's one of those things you do notice from time to time from uh, passengers when they're heading somewhere. They don't realise the importance of immigration and papers, etc. And of course, things got stranger still when they landed in Kuwait. A gentleman in a uniform with a, a stick under his armpit said, Hello, sir. I've come to meet uh, some VIPs from your flight. And can we get them off straight away, please? Clive initially thought the special treatment must be for a Kuwaiti royal who was on board. When I said, oh yes, I should go and get him, the answer was no, 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 no. There should be about eight gentlemen in the party. Then the penny dropped and I realised who he was referring to. He said to me, you are running very, very late. And I said, yes, that was our technical fault at uh, Heathrow, but that has now been fixed. He said, I need to get them off the aircraft quick, in a hurry. I got my purser at the back to escort them up the front straight away. They were off within a few moments. I can now reveal that these men were part of a secret mission designed to get into Kuwait before the invasion started. They were to link up with assets already in Kuwait and provide eyes on the ground, reporting back on troop movements and capabilities. Those who briefed the team said they expected the Kuwait military to resist the Iraqi invaders for between 24 and 72 hours. Plenty of time for the secret operatives to deploy. Detailed discussions had taken place about the best way to get the team into Kuwait. It had to be fast and reliable and avoid border crossings and checkpoints. The men had to be able to carry their surveillance gear with them. It was decided the simplest method was to fly direct to Kuwait. There were some initial reservations about the potential dangers of using a civilian aircraft. 
but given how long the Kuwaitis were expected to defend their country, the plane would be able to land, the team could deploy, and Flight 149 should be long gone by the time Iraqi units reached Kuwait City. Except that's not what happened. The Kuwait military collapsed much more quickly than anticipated, within three hours. And Flight 149 was still on the runway. But of course we know the men did make it off the plane before the rest of the passengers were taken hostage. The reason we know this is that, as well as Clive's eyewitness account, I've interviewed members of this secret team. Of course I can't reveal any details about them, but I do have accounts of their arrival in Kuwait and the mission itself. The team members were mostly drawn from a group known in the Special Forces community as the Increment, or the Inc. The existence of the Increment is not acknowledged by the government. All its members resign their existing jobs and join the private sector. The Inc. was perfect for the Kuwait job. They were all experienced undercover operatives. The first the team knew of the invasion was when they left the aircraft in Kuwait. They could see the evidence with their own eyes. Vehicles fleeing the airport, fires in the distance, and soon the sound of gunfire. Only minutes later, the Iraqi forces arrived. The group split into four two-man teams. As they left the airport, they were lucky not to be stopped by the hordes of Iraqi troops flooding into the city. They saw several checkpoints where Kuwaitis were dragged from their cars and shot on the spot. In the midst of the chaos of the invasion, I know that three teams made it to their intended destinations. Some sources told me that one pair were captured. They would have faced a brutal interrogation if their true identities were found out but they bluffed their way through by pretending to be ordinary passengers. And of course, we've already heard how one of the teams had to abort their mission when an operative was struck down with food poisoning. It was a very dangerous assignment. One of the men told me, You've just got to suffer in silence and survive the best way you can. Because that is the name of the game, basically. You push out your parameters. When you think you have gone to the limit, you push yourself out even further. The next thread we need to tie up is Captain Richard Brunyate. You'll remember he escaped from the hotel with a few crew members by happening to meet someone from the Kuwaiti resistance. You might also remember that I found this a bit of a strange coincidence, a bit far-fetched. I interviewed Richard a couple of times over the years. When reviewing my notes of our first interview, I was struck by him saying there'd been no group of men who boarded the flight at the last minute. But he'd been told this by his crew. Here's Clive Earthy. Some people have said that my captain must have been in the know. He must have known those men were on board and he must have gone out of his way to make sure he landed the plane with the men on board as priority. Well, I met the guy, I knew the fellow, I knew him, I'd flown with him many times and I'm afraid I just can't believe it. I just don't believe it, I'm afraid. He wasn't alone flying a jumbo jet, you know. <laughs> There's the first officer there and the flight engineer and they're all listening for the call from Heathrow. I was up there a lot of the time and all of us would have heard the 
Bing bong. Heathrow calling. We were all there waiting. So the outcome is what? British Airways were never told. Somebody in the government level said, no, don't tell British Airways because they might divert a bloody plane. <sighs> but who would have had the authority to do that? How do we know who had the authority to do that? It's a good question. Another question might be, was the delay at Heathrow Airport designed to get the ink team on board? According to Clive and others, this was to fix a genuine fault. But it's hard not to see this delay as a window of opportunity to get the men on at the last minute. BA staff in Kuwait were told the delay was due to air traffic control issues. When the female hostages were released, Richard Bournier gave one of them an important number to call once she reached London. He apparently said, Tell them you've been with me and I've had to blow my cover. He said the number was for MI6, British intelligence. It seems Bournier was an MI6 asset. It's important to distinguish here between asset and officer. An asset is someone who might be called on if needed, not an actual employee of the Secret Service. Bournier apparently had been given Kuwaiti resistance contacts ahead of the flight to use in case they got into trouble, which of course they did. More after this short break. This is the secret history of Flight 149. Let's return to the press conference of August 2021. This event was a reunion for the Human Shields, 31 years to the month after they were taken hostage. Tony had agreed to appear. This was a really big deal. Sitting alone in my hotel room the day before, I recorded a voice note. I've just had lunch with my MI6 contact, Tony Pace. Um, he seems a little nervous, understandably, and I'm pretty nervous as well about how it's going to go. Of course, he is subject to the Official Secrets Act, which um, is pretty draconian, and he can go to jail or face other retaliation. But he really strikes me as an honest and brave man and he seems determined to appear before the human shields and the media tomorrow alongside me. So um, here is hoping. Arriving at the venue where it was taking place, it was an emotionally charged atmosphere. I was meeting some of the Human Shields in person for the first time, and many of them hadn't seen each other since their ordeal. You can hear some of them greeting Clive. Yeah, I, I probably met you on the flight. Yeah, I do remember you. I was an 18-year-old on the flight. Really? Really? At one point, Clive came face to face with a passenger named Christine. Hi, I'm Christine. She reminded him he'd helped save her life by rushing back onto the plane to collect her insulin as the airport was being seized by the Iraqis. There were lots of hugs and tears. I stood up to address the media. Um, thanks for coming, everybody. 
I shall do my best to go through all this in a coherent fashion. Having flown in from New Zealand 6am Friday morning, uh, the jet lag is hitting just about now actually, so I will do my best. My name is Stephen Davis, I'm an investigative reporter. I want to really thank most uh, strongly the Human Shields, the victims of this appalling business, who have made the effort to talk to me, sometimes about quite traumatic matters over the years, have trusted me with their stories, and many of whom have appeared here today. After my introduction, the Human Shields took some questions. Clive was asked what he would like to happen next, what he'd like to come from this. All I personally would like would be an apology and an admission that there were these men put on my aircraft at Heathrow. Why did they take dominance over 370, 380 ordinary passengers, men, women and children? For some reason, the plane had to land with those men and to hell with the fact that there were 380 people, my passengers, all taken hostage. After Clive and his fellow Human Shields had spoken, Tony Pace gave his account of the events of 1st of August 1990. A reminder, the media, myself included, had long reported that Tony told British Airways it was safe to fly that night. I got to the embassy probably about 4.30, I think. Uh, and about 5.30, the country manager for BA suddenly appeared. So there he was in the embassy basically saying, I just got back, what's happening? I gave him a full briefing. There was a final message from me, and it was along the lines of, I do believe that if you've got a plane going through at 12 o'clock tonight, it will probably get through. But if the Iraqis invade, then they will come in the wee small hours. So don't bank on getting a plane through same time tomorrow night. Now, somebody who was far away from the border, had no knowledge of, of uh, troop movements on the border other than that I've already explained, I think that was a fairly good warning to give to the British Airways country manager. What it certainly was not, as has been repeatedly said in the press, and indeed maintained by British Airways, I did not say it was safe to fly. On the contrary, I gave as good a heads up as any diplomat could have done at that time. Here I am back in my hotel room after it was all finished. It's been a long day. It's been a good day. It was a little strange. Uh, I've been trying to tell this story for 30 years. This is the most publicity that we've had. But at the end of the press conference, I felt a little deflated. I had to go and find a quiet place to myself and sit down and... I kind of then worried if the, I had raised these people's expectations. 
expectations of what might be achieved by this, getting an apology, getting an admission, getting Operation Sandcastle released. But then I came upstairs and they were all there and they hugged me and there were tears. I felt quite tearful and that sort of made it all worthwhile. Um, It remains to be seen, of course, what the final result is. A couple of days later, I spoke with Ginny Gill. She reflected on an emotional reunion with a fellow passenger called Richard. I just saw his face and I just burst into tears. Because all I needed to do was see somebody that had been through what I'd been through. And, and he was very tearful too. Because it's almost like we didn't have to say anything to each other. And that was the beauty of it all. It's all within us and we all know how we, it's made us feel but it's so difficult to talk about it. And it's only in the last two years that I have actually openly started talking about this. And I guess it was Pandora's box. I was too scared to open that box because I don't know what was in it. And I didn't know how to control that level of emotion behind it. And when I met people at the press conference on Monday, it was really touching when they said, oh, we found it so difficult to focus on things. I feel like sometimes I just get angry. I feel like that emotion is still stuck in there. You know, it's still eating us up inside. And I said, I get it. I get it. How did you feel when Tony Pace said, no, that's not what I told them. I did not tell them it was safe to fly. I think we all knew. We all knew the truth. And Tony confirmed what we knew already. Deep down inside, we all knew. I think it was so brave of Tony to come out and say what he did. Just over three months after the press conference, something astonishing happened. The British government released a swathe of files about the invasion of Kuwait and Flight 149. I was given the heads up by the Foreign Office that they were about to be released. There were many, many documents. They were all available through the National Archives website. It would be impossible to go through them all here, but Several details came to light that challenged the previous official narrative. The Foreign Secretary issued a surprising statement alongside the release of the files. Here's an extract, read for us by an actor. We now know that Iraq was beginning a full invasion of Kuwait on the night of 1st, 2nd August. The files being released today describe how things looked to those involved at the time. On 1st of August, the British Embassy in Kuwait told the local British Airways office that while flights on 1st of August should be safe, subsequent flights were inadvisable. So, to be clear, this backs up what Tony Pace has said. The statement goes on. The government has always condemned the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the suffering that followed and the mistreatment of those aboard BA-149. The responsibility for these events and the mistreatment of those passengers and crew lies entirely with the government of Iraq at the time. Importantly, it also explains that a call was made from the embassy in Kuwait to the Foreign Office in London 
about reports of an Iraqi invasion while Flight 149 was en route. The statement says... The information was passed by the resident clerk to the head of the FCO's Middle East Department and also to Number 10, the Ministry of Defence, Cabinet Office and the Secret Intelligence Service, but not to British Airways. So this shows that the government was aware of the invasion while Flight 149 was in the air. Which begs the question, why wasn't the flight diverted? At the time, there appeared to have been no formal arrangements by which information about such events could be passed from the FCO to airlines or the Department of Transport. A procedure to deal with situations like this now exists, involving government and the airline industry. So this account would seem to explain why no information was passed to the flight deck. If the government hadn't informed BA, then BA couldn't contact the captain. Except, Tony says the BA country manager was warned. There was a final message from me, and it was along the lines of, I do believe that if you've got a plane going through at 12 o'clock tonight, it will probably get through. But if the Iraqis invade, then they will come in the wee small hours. So don't bank on getting a plane through same time tomorrow night. I've tried to reach this BA country manager multiple times over the years to get his account, but I've never heard back. The Foreign Secretary statement goes on to say... There was also speculation at the time and since that the flight was used to carry members of UK Special Forces. The files are consistent with the then Minister for Europe statement in April 2007 that the government at the time did not attempt in any way to exploit the flight by any means whatever. Exploit is an odd phrase to use. Another interesting choice of words is UK Special Forces. My research into the increment tells me its members come from Special Forces and the intelligence services. But to maintain deniability, they travel as private citizens. Finally, the statement ends. The call made by HMAQ8 has never been publicly disclosed or acknowledged until today. These files show that the existence of the call was not revealed to Parliament and the public. This failure was unacceptable. As the current Secretary of State, I apologise to the House for this, and I express my deepest sympathy to those who were detained and mistreated. I suppose that's something. Just before Christmas, a key document was released. This time it was the much-anticipated Operation Sandcastle report. This is the dossier that the Human Shields and I had been calling for, the one Anne Cloyd had been pushing the government on for years, the one Tony Pace felt was long overdue. But when I finally saw the document with my own eyes, after 30 years of waiting, I was stunned. Given that over a 1,000 witnesses submitted questionnaires for it and 725 statements were taken, I was expecting all of these accounts to be included. But what was released was just 15 pages long. The full details, the witness statements themselves, were not attached. What the report did reveal was a shocking number of offences committed by Saddam Hussein's regime 1,944 of them against British citizens, and 1,506 against other nationalities. These offences included murder, attempted murder, rape, 
grievous bodily harm, assault and inhuman treatment. The report concludes that the investigation has revealed considerable and compelling evidence of systematic and continuous grave breaches of the Fourth Geneva Convention committed by the Iraqi authorities, members of the Iraqi armed forces and their collaborators. It's shocking that such an account could have stayed buried for so many years. But it was nearly Christmas. COVID was raging. Political sleaze allegations were circling. And so Operation Sandcastle received no press coverage. In the final episode of The Secret History of Flight 149, we'll tell you what new revelations have emerged since we started making this podcast. We'll also hear what became of the human shields as they tried to move forward with their lives. I wasn't in control of my life. Even though I'd stopped drinking, I wasn't in control of my life. And things were going wrong, left, right and centre. It was it was it had fallen apart. It's still ongoing now. And the anger is, is still there. And there were, in a sense, we're lucky that we didn't die. The secret history of Flight 149 is a crowd network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. Sound designers by Phil Brown. To get episodes without adverts, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. This series is based on my book, Operation Trojan Horse, which tells the full story of Flight 149 and my search for the truth. It's available now in print, ebook, and audiobook. In the US and Canada, The book is called simply Flight 149. And following the success of this podcast, there will be a new paperback edition later this year. It's called, you guessed it, The Secret History of Flight 149. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast to listen to, try .com. Series 1 is all about the people behind Wikipedia. Series 2 delves into the world of Reddit, one of the darker and more complex corners of the internet. Check it out. Just search for .com wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.